Hey friends, welcome to the Reconstructing Prayer podcast, a one-season, short-run podcast series where I sit down with leading Christian intellectuals and I interview them on the intersection between theological deconstruction and spiritual formation. I'm Andrew Ray Williams, the author of a newly released book entitled Reconstructing Prayer Beyond Deconstructing Your Faith, published by Cascade Books. I'm really excited about today's conversation, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Today I have the opportunity of sitting down and talking with Dr. Chris Green, who is a professor of public theology at Southeastern University, and he's a director for St. Anthony Institute of Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgics. He is the author and editor of a number of books, including most recently, All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology. He lives with his family in Cleveland, Tennessee, and is just an all-around awesome guy. Chris was my PhD supervisor at Bangor University in Wales, and every time I get an opportunity, I love to talk with him, love to pick his brain. He's a great mind and a great guy, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Well, Chris, thanks for being on, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be here. It's always good to see you. It's always good to see you as well. I know you have a lot going on in your life. You're you just moved, right? I did. Yeah. And um, I gave you a bit of a, a little bit of bio right before we uh, in this intro. But tell our listeners a little bit about you, your personal life, professionally, and also kind of what God's doing in your life, bringing you to a new place. And so, yeah, can share a little bit update. Yeah, it's a new old place, as you know. My wife and I and our kids, we lived here 2012 to 2018. I think it was 2018. I'm terrible at recounting my own <laughs> dates. But we we loved living here. Here here is Cleveland, Tennessee, just, just outside of Chattanooga, south of Knoxville. And it was a lovely place. We We loved our time here. Went from here to Florida. Uh, lived there for a while, then moved to Tulsa during like right in the beginning of the pandemic. And then from Tulsa to here, we, we are still not fully landed here. I'm here. I've been here for a few weeks by myself. Uh, my wife and kids will be coming out when, when school term is finished and we're, we're excited about it. I mean, we, we love our house. We liked living here, so we've got friends. Our kids have friends, so it's it's a nice it's a nice transition for us. I mean, obviously, it's busy as can be, but it's a move we want to make. It's a move that's good for us to make, and it is a bit like coming home, even though we're both from Oklahoma, and you know, of course, we have dear friends who live there and family as well. This was this was a place we could go that wasn't leaving home for something new, but leaving home for something familiar. Mm. It's been, it's been graced that the, the entire process has been. So we're, we're, we're really grateful and excited. Awesome. Awesome. It's a privilege to be able to talk with you. I really am excited about getting your thoughts on some of the things that, that I'm writing on and thinking of, because I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing on as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, one of the things that I'd love to to ask you about Chris is what you make of this whole well, what's kind of come to be known as the deconstruction movement 
mm-hmm. that is obviously outside the church, but also very much alive in the church. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Oh, of course. Yeah. And just cut me off when, when you've had enough. <laughs> I think there are a lot of different things that are getting bundled together, even though they probably shouldn't be bundled together under that label. Yeah. I think we are experiencing, like in the broadest sweep, I think we are kind of experiencing the end. Maybe maybe death is not too, too strange a metaphor for it, of a kind of cultural arrangement, a kind of Christianity that wasn't deeply rooted in people's lives or, or hearts. And as the world changes as our society shifts, societies shift and our cultures change because it's not deeply rooted. Some of that starts to fade, you know? And so I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, they get demographically named the nuns, Mm -hmm. like people who have, you know, spiritual sensibilities or even religious longing, but don't identify with a tradition or with our, our faith. I think that that number increases as that kind of cultural civic Christianity starts to lose its lose its place. I, I think that's one, but I, I think that needs to be talked about kind of on its own terms, right? Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are from, let's say, kind of mainstream evangelical circles who've grown up in toxic circles, toxic churches, and whether that's because of the spirituality or the theology or just the dynamics of that community, but in various ways, dysfunctional church settings. And now because of the way, the the kind of therapeutic bent of our culture, the kind of awareness about mental health, much of which is good. And of course, that's that's mixed as well. Like there can be um, therapeutic culture gone wild, right? Can be yeah. self-obsessed in a way that's really <clears throat> actually ironically unhealthy. Yes, but but in all in at its best, like that, the push toward health, mental health, self-care can kind of bring us to an awareness of just how abusive and toxic environments have been. And I think a lot of a lot of younger people, especially not only but especially have kind of recognized that and they walked away that that doesn't seem to me identical with that kind of first fading of cultural Christianity or civic Christianity. Yeah. Those like, perhaps they're related, but they're not identical. I think to kind of come to the heart of the matter, I think a lot of what gets called the, at least what gets brought up to me, the conversations I end up in are people who find that they grew up in more or less intense, deeply believing environments. And yet are finding now that that just doesn't work for them, that it just, for whatever reason, they cannot believe it. They can't hold to it. It feels hollow or flat to them. And I I think that is not entirely unrelated to the other movements, but is is something on its own terms. And, and in many cases, 
that I think is the failure of our churches to provide deep theological and moral and spiritual openness and readiness to to live a, a way of living that is deeply deeply human honest searching learned wise we've by and large failed to do that yeah. so as people come up against the difficult difficult seasons and and find that it just doesn't work for them because of those other shifts I've named, there's more space to be public about it. I think, I think this has kind of always been true that, that people as they're maturing and as life gets hard, they find, they find the weakness of the ways in which they've been formed. They find the ways in which the theology they were given or the spirituality they were given just doesn't quite work. But when the broader culture doesn't want to hear that from you, you can't voice it. Right? So it remains hidden. Right now, we're in a cultural space where you can voice anything at any time. Right? Yep. You can post it on Facebook if you want. You can tweet about it. You can you know, do your Instagram story. It, there's, no, there's no kind of no limit to what you can share about your own story. And I think then we create a, a kind of perfect storm of my story then triggering your story triggering other stories right and and there's a kind of momentum to disbelief and doubt and all of course all of that of course um it snowballs right and it, it takes on a life of its own so i i think there and there's still other features i mean we haven't even talked now about like the scandals the 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 abuse yeah. scandal in the Catholic Church, uh, all that happened in the Southern Baptist Church. I mean, the the scandals around um, the the TV ministry from you know a generation ago. TV ministries a generation. I mean, it's there's there's kind of no end to all of the factors that are playing in. I think as best we can, we want to name the differences there, but all together they do create a kind of you know, perfect storm or critical mass that makes makes us reach for a word like deconstruction to name all of that. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Chris. I like the distinctions you're making too, because it is almost like a jumbled mess. And you have yes. to ask, okay, you're talking about deconstruction. What do you mean by that? Right? Yep. Yep. You know, I think another cultural issue that comes into play here is we all feel this. It's, it's very individualistic. And it's we all kind of want to bump up against what we inherited, right? Because, you know, the, the religion of America is almost free choice, right? On yes. both sides of the cultural divide, right? And so <clears throat> I need to choose my path. And there's that as well. And you, it, like you said, it gets thrown into all of these other factors, church culture, wider societal cultures, and all of that kind of gives birth to this movement. One thing that, that is very much a statistic is about one in two people who grow up in the church, at least here in the U.S., begin disassembling their faith right after high school. And that's a, that's a staggering statistic. And that doesn't count the people that have 
that are that's that happens later in life. And so I do think that forms of deconstruction, certain kinds and ways of it, can be very helpful and actually spiritually formative. But it seems like often the case that that's not the case, right? Yeah, right. No, no, yeah, there's so many, so many different aspects there to try to to try to name, and I, I don't claim to be able to do it all. But some of what gets called deconstruction, I think, is just growth. It's it's learning. You know, so we we are a culture of first thoughts, and by we, I mean kind of middle class American evangelical working class folks, we tend to be people of first thoughts. And what I mean by that is we think that training, formation, learning is about getting the right ideas, the the most basic right ideas up front so that you don't really have to do any thinking from there. And and often, if not always, we do that via some ver- version of biblicism. The Bible is clear on the various issues. You know, pick an issue, doesn't matter. The Bible is clear on that. We settle that. We give that first thought. This, this is what you need to know. And we don't need to go from there, right? In, in everyday English, when we say someone is having second thoughts, we mean they're doubting their first thought. They have, they've had a first thought that should have been good enough. But it wasn't, so they're having a second thought. But of course, having a second thought is just another name for you know thinking and yes. learning. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, tragically, American evangelicals, you know, the dominant forms of American evangelicalism, um, they're they're opposed to thinking. They're opposed, and I don't just mean they're anti-intellectual in the kind of cliched sense. I mean they're designed to keep you from having to do the work of discernment interpretation, judgment. We, we've we tried to deliver the right kinds of first thoughts up front, so you never have to get to a second thought about anything. You never have to doubt it. Well, I mean, that's impossible, yeah. and, and it's unhelpful, and it's not what the Spirit is doing anyway. So as people are maturing, as people, as the Spirit is leading them into the deeper things of God, as we say, of course they're going to have second thoughts. That's how it should work. They should be... Yeah questions about what their first thoughts mean. You can get a kind of analogy here, I think, by thinking about the levels of Scripture, the meanings of Scripture. So like in both Jewish and Christian tradition, there, as you know, there's an argument that, you know, Scripture has levels of meaning. So you kind of have an yeah. initial letter letter of the text sense, a literary sense, or a literal sense. But then there are deeper senses, mystical senses, spiritual senses that have, you know, and of course, some of these get, the schemes get quite complicated. But both Jewish and Christian tradition have kind of always insisted that there's what the letter of the text says, there's what the spirit of the text says, and then there are the kind of hidden mysteries in any any given text. But we've become like hyper-literal about every issue, every text every doctrine and that's inhumane and it's it quenches the spirit it it undermines the process of you know what we call discipleship and sanctification so a lot of what is getting labeled as deconstruction is actually sanctification that's being resisted by a culture that doesn't want maturity that doesn't want development right yeah. so there are a whole lot of people who say that you and i 
have deconstructed, but I, I didn't deconstruct. Right? I was just following the leading of the spirit, right? L- learning yeah. the faith that had been handed to me. That, that's one thing. On the other side, there are a lot of people who think they're deconstructing when actually they're just maturing. Yeah. Like not just that others are accusing them of it. They feel as if they're losing their faith. I mean, I've had so many conversations with people who, you know, they framed it as if I think I'm losing my faith. But when you start talking, you realize, no, your faith is getting wiser. Your faith is getting pure. Yeah. It's becoming yours in a way that that requires this this kind of challenge, this kind of difficulty. So that's that's part of it. You've heard me say this before, but I part of the culture of first thoughts is that we we seek a kind of painlessness. So we we want things to be simple. And what we mean by simple is it's true in a way that doesn't require any effort on my part to understand. Like if it's really important, I shouldn't have to think about it. It will present itself to me. It will be self-evident. And if it's not that simple, then it can't be that important. Right. The moment if if you bring anything that isn't simple to me, then I'm going to, I'm going to assume you have some kind of political agenda that's making you complicate a simple truth. Yeah. You're making things difficult. You're making things exact. Precisely. Yeah. Rather than rather than life being, things are difficult. <laughs> things are difficult. And we're kind of discovering that and moving in that wave. We're actually generating this difficulty. And supposedly, so, we, right. so yeah, supposedly, and it becomes the issue. Yeah, yeah that's I, right. So I, that I, gets tied. Oh, good. Go no, 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 no. Go ahead. Keep going. That gets tied to this kind of press for productivity or success outcomes, which mostly means people showing up, people giving money, you know, the, whatever you're, if, if it's a church, you know, people attending and tithing, right? If it's a, a, a ministry, you know, people supporting you or getting, you know, clicks online, whatever, whatever the case might be. So, so that simplicity kind of proves itself in its success, if you keep it simple, you will succeed. And if you're not succeeding, it's because you've not been simple enough, right? Like you, you've complicated unnecessarily. And then that is carried along by this aversion to pain like that we, we want it all to be painless. We want it to be simple, successful, and painless. And that's not what life is. That's not how God works. That's not the ways in which discipleship and sanctification play out in the spirit. That's not how scripture is designed to work. And it, it it will, even when it succeeds, it will fail. Even when it quote unquote works, it doesn't work. And a lot of what we call deconstruction is simply the failure of that system to translate to real life. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right, Chris, because, you know, I talk about in my book that I went through some kind of what people would call deconstruction. But like you said, more than anything, it was it was simply just growing. It was right. simply just becoming a disciple. You know, you, you think about the disciples, Jesus, they had a lot of first thoughts, right? <laughs> and Jesus, um, if we want to use this language, deconstructed those a lot. In fact, he he didn't just give them new new answers. Yeah. He made them, he, he spoke in riddles. You know, right. he gave them parables that, again, were not our modern day illustrations by any means. They were more ways of 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 throwing them into that mystery for them to begin to grapple for those second thoughts. Right. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. And I think that that's one of the things I, I do in my my introduction to this to this book <clears throat> is actually quote you. And I'd like to to read this sure. and have you res- respond. Um, and you're a great book, and I highly recommend uh, Chris's writing in general, but uh, in his book, Surprised by God, which is just a, a wonderful little book that uh, is quite readable and very packed full of wisdom. You say this, I was raised to think of God in specific terms and expect God to act in particular ways. Now, most, if not all those terms and ways are lost on me, but only because God always proves to be more than those concepts and expectations can handle. Even if I'm not always pleased to find this happening to me, I'm happy that God is beyond all I can ask or think. Tell me a little about your experience and what this has been like for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, of course, would take forever to kind of go through all the details, but I can give you a few a few examples, kind of, you know, gesture towards some of the, some of the changes. That'd be great. What, one, and, and these range from, you know, kind of crucially important, but not necessarily existentially or personally weighty. You know, for example, I mean, I, I grew up imagining, you know, that that heaven was a place in outer space and that God was a, a kind of oversized white man. Well, a couple of white men and a bird, you know, like uh, a father and a son, <laughs> their, their pet dove. You know, yes. I mean, I didn't. I, I just assumed in the most literal, concrete way, right, that God is out there somewhere and that actually we're living in the absence of Jesus, right? Jesus was here at one time and now he's traveled, you know, somewhere far into outer space. And at some point he's going to get on a horse and ride back. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to interstellar horse ride uh, back to, back to earth. I mean, I, that's what I grew up. I think that's what everybody thought in my mm-hmm. circles. That's certainly what I took in. Right. But that didn't terrify me. I mean, I've, of course, as I've matured and, and learned the faith that I've been given, I know now how absurd and silly that is and why it matters. But that didn't give me nightmares. What gave me nightmares was this a fear of, of the rapture because of that would mean the coming of God when I wasn't ready. I mean, some of my earliest memories as a kid are, are nightmares about being raptured while I was sinning and of course i'm a little kid so sinning meant things like not having my shirt buttoned all the way to the top or (laughs) um, playing when i should have been doing my chores there was a dream i had where i was jumping on a trampoline when i should have been cleaning my room and jesus appears you know that kind of thing and fear of hell although kind of sickly i was more afraid of jesus than i was hell and i was terrified of hell and of course the two are related what i was terrified of was was jesus coming when i wasn't ready and me therefore being punished eternally because he caught me you know caught me without you know unready and so i think that weighed on me like that tormented me and it it was an incredible relief to recognize that that's not who Jesus is, and that's not that's not God's way with us. 
And I, I would say that's been that's where my heart turned. The, the, the theological shifts the, the, and the philosophical ones, which are still vitally important about yeah. you know what it means to talk about God's attributes, you know what it means for God to be omnipresent, what it means for God to be all-knowing, so on, down the line. Like all those things matter. But I think the the heart shift, the the central one was what it means to say that God is good. So if I, I, I can put it like this, ultimately you can't separate God's character and nature what God is like in the sense of his kindness towards you is inseparable from what God is like in terms of his way of knowing. Right. But I do think it's most important to get the character right in order to understand the nature. Like we don't start with an abstract understanding of nature. How does God know? What does it mean for God to be? And then figure out what kind of character he has, what kind of, or how does he treat us? How does he feel toward us? You have to work the other way around. You have to know the heart of God and then come to understand what that means for the nature of God's being, the way yeah. in which God is God. Yeah. And that, that I think for me, it was that shift around yeah. what the coming <clears throat> of Jesus and what hell and heaven would mean. Yeah, I, I like that, that, that twist of method. Because I think that's exactly right. And actually, even some, I think about even some of the great thinkers in the Christian tradition even got that backwards. Oh, absolutely. And we oftentimes come to that and get that backwards. And I think this shows, and this is one of the things that I think is so crucial during times when, again, like you have people coming to you saying, hey, I think I'm losing my faith. They're like, no, 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 you're not losing your faith. Your faith is growing and blooming. And I think one of the reasons that we, that oftentimes, this is how I felt, when profound shifts begin to take place in myself, and I began to quote unquote question or wrestle with God or my faith, the reason it felt so disillusioning is because it wasn't because of the intellectual dis- difficulties. It was because as my, as the intellectual um, concepts about God and about me and, and us and, and all of it began to shift. My spirituality shifted, right? It shifted for the better, but I couldn't see it that way because all of the, the things I had relied upon began to be shaken, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the practice that I, practices I would, I would go to didn't seem to, to relate with me in, in the same way they used to. Again, I do think there are people who are just actively seeking to deconvert, right? But there's a lot of people that are not wanting to deconvert. They want to follow Jesus. They love Jesus. Yeah. But it's it's they're being shaken because of some of the various factors that we've talked about earlier. What are some ways that you think can actually help this be a formative time rather than deformative in people's spiritual journeys? Yeah. So so many things to say. One, one let me let me come at it like this. And I, I mentioned this somewhat. I passed this comment earlier. But I, I think it's it's really important to make a distinction between suffering, which is a result of the fall. It, it, God did not make us to suffer. He did not make the world to be a place of suffering. But sin and death have brought that about. But difficulty is good. Difficulty is something God has given us. Like God does mean life to be challenging and difficult, not 
a, a source of suffering in this in that that sense that sin has brought about, but in the sense that under the pressure of under the demand of that difficulty, we are able to kind of surface these gifts that are hidden in us that we don't know are there, right? And so there there has to be a kind of pressure on us in order for maturation to happen, for for us to develop strength, for us to to become who we're meant to become and discover, you know, what God has seeded in us. So I think one is to kind of not experience difficulty as something going wrong. I think it's absolutely essential to see when when life is getting difficult and you're starting to struggle with your faith, starting to struggle with what you think about God and what you feel about God's people or what you feel about scripture or what what you find happening when you're attending church. Don't think that that's a signal for something going wrong. Like that is a that's exactly what should be happening. So that, I think that's first. The second is to make a distinction between faith which is the gift of God. Like, so you can't actually lose your faith because you didn't find it in the first place. right? God has given to every one of us the measure of faith, Paul says. right? So yep, that's right. faith is something God is giving you. In fact, I, the way that I would talk about it, and our mutual friend Aaron Ross has, has written about, about this, mm-hmm. like, faith is the work of the Spirit in your life. It's, it, faith is grace being given to you as your own. Right, so that you you can respond to God freely and personally because God has has seeded faith in you right you you have the measure of faith you can't lose that because that that's God's now you can misuse it but you can't yeah. lose it right? yeah you can bury it in the ground and not but you can't lose it you cannot lose your faith what you can do is question your beliefs so I want to make a distinction between faith which is the gift of God and beliefs, which are the ideas you have about what that faith requires of you and means for you. And you can lose, you you can question those beliefs. Those can change. But usually what people mean by losing their faith is they lose their feeling of confidence in their beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. I used to believe I used to have ideas X, Y, and Z, and now I no longer feel confident that I'm right about those things. Yeah. But that's not really here. It's neither here nor there. Because our faith is not in our beliefs. Our faith is in the living God revealed in the face of Jesus. Yes. And whether or not I can be confident in my beliefs is not really at issue. Now, I don't mean to downplay the pain of what happens when you think you've been wrong about something? I, I mean, that's a real pastoral problem. It's it's something to be worked out with your spiritual director or your therapist or your friends or your family. But that's not a loss of faith. Like, and you know, it's it's a testimony to how uh, individualistic we are. That when I start to lose confidence in my beliefs, I call that a loss of faith. And what what we should do instead is kind of be able to name it as, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about what I've been told to believe. So now, in the spirit of teachability, prayerfully, God, show me. Right, Not, Not give me back my sense of confidence in my beliefs, but show me what's true. Yeah. 
you know, not restore to me the naivete I had when I thought my beliefs were the truth. <laughs> Show me the truth. Yes. Yeah. And that's the difference. Like we're we're moving toward the truth. The, the what we're praying for is to know what's true. Yes. Not to feel good about what we thought it was true. Yes. And I, I so I think have been ready for that that journey, the pilgrimage, the the seeking of truth, knowing that. I, and and I, I, this may sound like overstatement, but I I don't mean it in that way. I don't mean it as exaggeration. I think everything we're taught, everything we learn as children, is either just wrong. Or it's the right thing we don't understand rightly yet. Yeah. So whatever whatever you learned, those first thoughts you were given, they're either just wrong completely, or many of them are right, but you're not right for them yet. You haven't grown into them. You don't know what they what they mean, right? Yeah. So an, an example of that would be: I mean, I was taught as a kid that God is holy, and that's absolutely right. But what they meant by holy and what I took them to mean was completely wrong. Yeah. But was God holy? Yes. Is God is God holy? Absolutely. Was I right about what I thought that meant? No, I couldn't have been more wrong right, about, <laughs> about what holiness meant. That's the kind of thing. That's just what maturation and sanctification, that's what it looks like as you live it. You start to recognize, okay, that was wrong. This was right, but I didn't grasp it rightly. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, I think of um there at some point, I can't remember if it was in this one of the systematics, but I read one time that Emil Bruner he said that doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing at all. Right. It's a point of transition to belief or unbelief. And I think there's something that's true about that. Yeah. That I think oftentimes we think, and, and actually people will, will tell us this, that if you're doubting at all, doubting the beliefs you've held dear, that you're already too far gone, yeah. rather than being in a point of transition. And the point of transition is can easily be uh, toward actually greater belief and greater faith as we receive it. Yeah. And I think there's definitely, definitely, something there for us to to contemplate because like you said oftentimes we are mixing what the actual issue actually is yeah yeah fundamentally confusing it so that we're and you know what it leads to is sometimes calling good things bad and bad things good <clears throat> yes that's where the danger is right that you start to you like even that phrasing of you're doubting God. And I, I do think there is something, you know, scriptural name as doubting God. But that's not the same thing as starting to wonder whether or not my ideas about God are right. Yeah, that's right. That's a different thing. And if I can't tell the difference between wondering whether or not my ideas about God are right and doubting God, if I can't tell that difference yet, that I desperately need guidance. I desperately need friends, pastors, spiritual directors, some wise voices in my life. You talked about children and as children, what we receive. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the reasons that some of the, the simplicity, the simplicity that we, 
not the good simplicity, the simplicity of things, everything in the world and everything about God is very simplistic, mm. can be almost reinforced by the words of Jesus, where Jesus says we need to become like children. And I do want, you know, I know we both want to affirm that we ought to pray like children, right? That's that's one of the reasons that I structured my book every every chapter with a children's prayer. Yeah, but I love it. But we, but but that doesn't necessarily mean what we always think it means, right? Can you say something about that? Yeah. So and you you mentioned this earlier. Like one of the things we have to get right is that the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus as he actually is presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is wildly different from the Jesus of kind of pop sensibility. So we we've here, and here's an example of it. We've imagined Jesus, and we've characterized Jesus as a simple teacher. And what we mean by a simple teacher is he's simplistic, easily understood by, again, people had to make no effort to understand him. But I'm not exaggerating. I challenge anybody to, to go and read the texts for yourselves if you haven't done it already. There is not a single instance in any gospel in which Jesus speaks and everybody understands what he means. Not a single one. There's not a single time in his life as it's given to us in the Gospels where Jesus says something, and it's not met with confusion, anger, misunderstanding by at least some people in the in the audience. Every single time. Like, whenever he speaks from the beginning to the end, it the response is mostly misunderstanding. That Most people just have no idea what he's talking about. Some people think they know, and they want to kill him for it. The only faithful ones are the ones who know they don't quite understand, but stay close to him anyway. You know, two examples: the the Syrophoenician, the Canaanite woman. When Jesus, she tells him about her daughter, and Jesus says, "I've come for the house of Israel. It's not right for me to give bread to dogs." And she says, "Well, I'll take the crumbs." Right. She doesn't know what he's doing or why. She just kind of remains tenaciously committed to, you're the only one who can help my daughter. Yeah. This is faith. And then John 6, when Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And not only the crowds, the disciples go away. Those who believed in him, many of them turned away because they were scandalized by what he said. And then Jesus turns to Peter and the others and says, will you also go away? <laughs> right? You talk about bad leadership. Like you can't teach the Jesus model of communication <laughs> because he's said something nobody understands. They're walking away thinking he's talking about something he isn't talking about. And his response is not to clarify. It's not to say, oh, no, 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 come back. I didn't mean that. It's, <laughs> are you going to leave too? And what Peter says, is, as we all know, is where would we go? Yeah. Right. We don't understand what you're saying, but we don't understand anybody else either. <laughs> <It's not> like, <laughs> and, and our understanding isn't the point. And like, Jesus is my Savior, not my ideas about Jesus yeah. and my confidence in them. When he's talking about little children, and what what it means, right? It's again much more challenging than we realize. Matthew eighteen. I've just looked it up here so we can. Let, let me read. Just read a little bit of it, please. 
At the time, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. The point here about becoming a little child is about changing from the things you think you know. Right? Like you've got to change what you think you know. The we often think of being a little child meaning I don't have to change. Like yeah. to be to be a little child is to, to be simplistic about what I hold, not not to fret about it. But Jesus is not saying it's good to be childish. He's saying it's good to become childlike. So being childish means you don't grow at all. You've not grown. Yeah. There's change. Becoming childlike is a radical change in which you humbly give up what you thought you knew, what you thought was right, who you thought you were. You repent. Yeah, that's right. So the point of this passage is not about become childish or remain childish at all. You've got to put childish things away, as Paul will say. Yep. I've got to put that away. But I can only put childish things away by reaching a point where I can become childlike by humbling myself and changing Yes, ways that are true to Jesus rather than my own ideology or my own proclivities. One thing I'd like to end it on is this. People who are, again, seeking to, to, to reconstruct their faith in a way that is not childish, childlike, but also, mm-hmm. again, uh, you know, to talk about what Paul says, he want, they want to put away the milk. They want to move towards the solid food. Mm-hmm. What 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 exhortation would you give them if they're listening to this podcast and they're looking for some spiritual guidance, some some wisdom? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it comes down to you have to have wise people in your life and, and there have to be wise flesh and blood people in your life. And generally, not always, but generally those are are older people who are kind of singled out by the grace they've shown in suffering. Like the, one of the ways you can kind of recognize wisdom is that's somebody who's been through a lot, but they still have a sweetness about them. Yeah. They're not, they're not embittered by what they've suffered. And I mean, I, I, I always be on the lookout for that. Like who's someone who's lived a long time, seen, seen a lot, and yet there's a there's still a you know some joy dancing in their eyes right it, it's not they're not th- th- there's a deep deep peace about the way they live i mean that's that's one of the ways in which you kind of recognize i think like there's wisdom there because they've <laughs> they've survived they've made it here and that says something so that's 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 one thing i'll say the other is find people who can help you find teachers who will give you language for what you're experiencing, who can help you read scripture, who can help you learn to pray, who can help you make sense of what God is doing in your life and what is happening in your life 
in ways that give it depth rather than, you know, cliched or simplistic labeling. Yeah. Like find out they're they're out there. In fact, it's probably easier now than it's ever been in some sense because of mm-hmm. you know how interconnected all of our lives are that we can do it. Oftentimes we think that if we can just get right the right answer to our questions, then that's gonna what is going to supply the maturity, right? But it's not. It often is and, and oftentimes those, like you said, those are not the same kind of people. I know that's been my own story. Um, and you, the first kinds of people um, may not be able to to help you intellectually grow the way you're you want to, uh, but usually they're wise enough to say to to know the difference of of needs and to know what they can provide and help. I mean, I, fortunately, I've had multiple people in my life like that that have been able to sit and love me exactly where I'm at, and then I've had other people that have come alongside and said, "Let me help you make sense of some of these things." Well, Chris, this has been delightful, and I know that this is no doubt uh, not only just filled my tank, but the many others as well. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you, bro. Absolutely, brother. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to episode four, where I talked with Dr. Chris Green. If you are interested in going deeper, I have a whole book on these ideas and actually how to begin to reconstruct faith and move beyond deconstruction to a more full holistic spirituality it just came out with cascade books you can get it on amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold really look forward to some more podcasts be dropped in the coming weeks they're gonna be dropped every single week so make sure and subscribe to the podcast and really looking forward to sharing more conversations with future guests thanks so much everybody and we will catch you next episode